Good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can be turning to 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18, and I'll meet you there in just a moment. I hope that you have your Bible handy. We're going to be looking at several passages, and I'll be turning with you this morning, and we look forward to studying God's Word. But once again, we're grateful that you're here, and even to those who are able to join us online, we're thankful for that opportunity, and we'll continue to be grateful for that, including the fact that hopefully, God be willing, on Wednesday night, we'll be able to assemble together. And even then, those that won't be able to be with us, Uh, We'll be able to watch via the live stream, and we're thankful for that opportunity that we have been able to have. Uh, Once again, it's just a wonderful day that we can be together, and we're thankful for the opportunity to see your faces, and there's a lot of good things going on, including uh, the classes that we hope to begin again, and we're thankful for our elders. Appreciate always Jeff's prayers, but uh, certainly as he gives thanks to our elders for their hard work and dedication and consideration and all the things that we're doing, we're thankful for that. We're thankful to have the Levi's back with us, absolutely. But we're continually mindful of all those who aren't able to be with us. Hope that you'll continue to reach out to those who are on our list. That list seems to be going the wrong direction, uh, of course, and growing. We we, uh, think about all those who are facing various trials. We just pray that you will... Uh, continue to encourage them any way that you have an opportunity to do that, uh, whether it's by cards or by calls, uh, because we want to continue certainly to pray for all of those folks. But we're grateful that you are here this morning. The first few blanks on your outline will reference Mount Carmel. Mount Carmel is one of the greatest scenes, in my opinion, when it comes to uh, biblical scenes. There are certainly many great accounts and stories and things that we read about. Certainly we think about the birth of Jesus, we think about the cross and that type of thing and uh, those instances that are so great to uh, all of mankind, the history of the world. But, but Mount Carmel is one of those other great occasions that we can read about. If you're like me, we sometimes appreciate the Old Testament stories or the Old Testament accounts of things that happen because they feel the closest sometimes to maybe the movies that we think about. The scenes that are painted for us, <coughs> excuse me, and we think about that type of idea that we can read, and especially here at Mount Carmel. There are some main folks who are gathered there at that time. We know Elijah is one of the prophets of God. We know that Elijah was taken by a whirlwind. He's going to go around and he's going to be preaching the word of God. We think about also gathered there at Mount Carmel is Ahab. If you opened there to 1 Kings chapter 18, you go back to chapter 16. And we are reminded in verse number 33 of who Ahab was, just how he lived his life. The Bible says, and Ahab made a wooden image. Ahab did more to provoke the Lord God of Israel to anger than all the kings of Israel who were before him. We think a lot about superlatives sometimes, those that you get when you were in high school, about those who would be the, you know, the most successful or, or all those lists of things that you wanted to be. And a lot of times those were encouraging words. They would describe you in a, a good manner. But when you think about Ahab going down in history as being the one who provoked God to anger the most of all the kings. He is the seventh king to serve in the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's gathered here at Mount Carmel in that time, at that time. And of course, also that are going to be gathered there are the 450 prophets of Baal. They're going to be connected with Ahab and of course with his wife Jezebel and with a lot of evil things. 
And as we think about that gathering there at Mount Carmel, these are some of the people who are gathered there at that time. And it is quite an account. I mean, it would make a pretty good movie. This is a great chapter. You think about verse number 21. The statement there from Elijah to the children of Israel, How long halt ye between two opinions? Or how long will you falter between two opinions? We speak Sometimes about the fact that in this life, there are really only two choices. You will either follow God and you have the opportunity to be in heaven or you will turn your back on God and you may spend an eternity in the devil's hell. That's the two options. That's the two choices. Elijah makes that point here to these people. How long go you between the two opinions? If God, or if Baal is God, then follow him. But if the Lord is God, then follow him. You go further in the chapter, you remember there's even blood. The prophets of Baal, as they are trying to call upon their gods, little g, plural s, gods, to come down and, and take up these sacrifices. They're getting upset. There's lots of yelling and hooping and hollering going on, and they're even cutting themselves. So there's, there's blood. There's water, of course, as in a lot of cases in the Bible. That is the fact that Elijah calls down... Or as he's going to call upon God, he's going to sprinkle or cover everything with water. And not really just sprinkle, I misspoke there, but cover it. So there's no doubt that when the fire comes down from God that it will be, everything will be consumed and the people will be able to know. It's quite an interesting thought to think about this scene. And even if we could be placed on a mountain over even further away, maybe another hillside and watch the things that take place here. This great victory won by God with, of course, Elijah there as his spokesman and all of those folks who would be gathered watching this battle, if you will. But what we really want to do is think about 1 Kings chapter 18 and verse number 18. You back up before Mount Carmel there and really the end of actually of verse number 17. As Elijah and Ahab are coming together, Ahab sees Elijah and he calls him out. He says, is that you, O troubler of Israel, the mocking, name-calling kind of tone? Is that you, Elijah? Are you the one who seems to be causing so much trouble? And in verse number 18, Elijah answers Ahab and says, I have not troubled Israel, but you and your father's house have, in that you have forsaken the commandments of the Lord. We know that Elijah is doing the Lord's work. We know the evil person that Ahab is. And so Elijah is going to put it right back to him and say, It's not me that's causing the problem. I'm not the one who is causing the trouble, but it's you and your father's house who have forsaken the Lord, the commandments of the Lord, and have followed the Baals. Now, depending on the version that you have in front of you, you may see a different phrase or word that is used there. But in the New King James, at least, it says the Baals. Now, I found that interesting one time when I was sort of reading this. Again, I've always loved 1 Kings chapter 18, but as I came, uh, came across the particular wording of that phrase, I thought that was interesting. It kind of brought to mind the sitcoms and the TV shows that we've watched for many years, kind of like the Waltons or the Jeffersons or the Bradys. You know, it's like the Bales. Like this is a, a family, so to speak. Now, again, what are we talking about? What does this mean if we're talking about the Baals? If you were to be reading the Bible and come across this word, you may read the idea of the Baals, which is going to be the theme for the next couple of weeks for us, or you may read Balaam. Now, no doubt if you're a, you are a Bible student, you may be familiar with this word, B-A-A-L. We oftentimes pronounce it Baal. Baal was the, one of the gods, little g, again, 
Pearl S, gods of the Canaanites in particular. But I think it's interesting because Baal is probably the god, little g god, the idol, that is mentioned the most maybe in the Old Testament. There are other names that you read about, the Ashtaroths and, and other things that are mentioned, other idols. But I think it's Baal that we know the most. And so it makes sense as we read this particular statement here by Elijah that you, Ahab, and your father's house, you have gone and followed the Baals. But what are we talking about? What does that even mean? What is the issue here? And the issue, very plain and very simply, is going to be idolatry. That's what the issue is. When Elijah is speaking to the children of Israel at this time, gathered here on Mount Carmel, the issue is idolatry. The issue at the heart of Ahab's problem is idolatry. And so when we think about idolatry and we think about idols... And again, it just kind of came to me one time in reading this particular phrase uh, of thinking about almost a family, if you will, the Baals. What does that mean? What might that entail? And that's what we want to consider. In a broad sense, what we're going to talk about is idolatry. But when we think about the Baals, the question you may be asking is, what does that have to do with me? I wasn't there on Mount Carmel. I don't have a problem with little G gods or Idols. I don't have little statues, statues all along my house. Idolatry is not something that I have to deal with. If we're not careful, this is the kind of statement that we make. We put ourselves in this position and we kind of take a comparison and we say, eh, well, that's not really me. I don't have a problem with that. Idolatry is not something that I struggle with. But what I'd like for us to consider this morning is how are you defining idolatry? What is idolatry? Because I think it would help us to try to really understand what that word means and how it can apply to us. Because certainly we were not at Mount Carmel. I was, I'm just going to go out on a limb and guess that none of you have a little statue in your house that has the name Baal by it probably, right? That's, that's not something that we deal with in that same way. But when we consider idolatry, what is it? Well, let's consider some common misconceptions first. Excuse me, go backwards there. Exodus chapter 32 and verse number 4. You see, when we think about the idea of idols, we oftentimes think of passages like here. Exodus 32 is, of course, the account of the golden calf. You may remember in verse number 4, Aaron receives the gold from the people's hands and he fashioned it with an engraving tool and made a molded calf. But it doesn't just stop there. What does he say? He, then he said, this is your God, O Israel, that brought you out of the land of Egypt. That's not true, is it? I mean, we just go, we go backward in our pages and we, we that's not right. That, that golden calf did not lead the children of Israel out of Egypt. But yet Aaron makes that statement. We also notice there that he, it says he fashions it with an engraving tool with his hand. But you may recall later in about verse 21... And 22 and following, that when Moses comes back and questions Aaron about the golden calf, Aaron says, well, I just tossed the gold in and poof, it came out, right? That's what we think of when we commonly think of idols. And that was certainly an idol. We're going to get to our main definition in just a moment, but you begin to see the picture painted there when Aaron says in verse 4, this is your God, O Israel. And not only that, but attribute something to it that, of course, it did not do. We go forward to 1 Kings chapter 12. This is before Mount Carmel. This is going to be what we commonly refer to as the dividing of the kingdom. 
We've had the three kings that are going to serve first over all of Israel. But then there is going to be uh, the death of Solomon. And there's going to be the dividing of the kingdom. You may recall in chapter 12 there that as Jeroboam takes over the northern kingdom of Israel, that he says to the people that it is too much for them, in verse number 28, to go up to Jerusalem. That's going to be too much work for you to have to go all the way up there. Here are your, and notice again, little g, God, plural S, here are your gods, O Israel, which brought you up from the land of Egypt. What's with these folks that continue to mention this and try to give these different calves the, the glory that is due God. And of course he says, he set up one, or the Bible says he set up one in Bethel and the other he put in Dan. Notice verse 30 though. Now this thing became a sin for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. Two calves made of gold. Did those things bring, bring the children of Israel up out of Egypt? I don't think so, but that's certainly the way that Jeroboam paints the picture and so again, we get the idea that there are golden calves that might serve as an idol. But maybe that's a little bit of a misconception. Go forward again to Acts chapter 17. You remember there as Paul is going to enter the city of Athens on his travels, and he's going to then speak to the people there at the Areopagus at Mars Hill. But verse 16 sets the stage for us. Now while Paul waited for them at Athens, some of those folks that are going to be come and joining him, his spirit was provoked within him. He is upset. He is bothered when he saw that the city was given over to idols. The Bible I'm using has a notation that says full of idols. Everywhere he turned, he's going to see these idols or these little g, plural s, gods. You can imagine him walking down a street. I don't know how many of you have ever been to a foreign land or, or a foreign country where maybe there was a marketplace. We don't quite have those in the same sense here on the side of the street. We certainly have things like flea markets or farmer's markets where people are selling things. But everywhere he goes, as he, as he turns, everywhere that he is walking, he is passing these people who would be selling these idols. The city was wholly, totally full of of idols, idolatry. When we think about idolatry, that's typically what we think of, but maybe, just maybe, that's a little bit of a misconception. Because that, if we think that is all that idolatry is, then we've got a problem there. Because the question for us is not only what is it that we asked a moment ago, but what could you be dealing with in your life that is an Idol, And I put it in quotation marks there because we're trying to paint this picture of what idolatry really is. It can involve little statues. It can in involve golden calves. It can involve little figurines. But maybe there's something else that is an idol in your life. Because we're going to notice that it is a problem even in the year 2020. Maybe the proper conception instead of misconception is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 5 because there we see New Testament Christians, right? Paul's writing to those in Corinth, those who would read this letter. And, and in 1 Corinthians chapter 5, we usually think about the brother who is dealing with sexual immorality. But go to the end of chapter 5 and notice he said, I wrote to you in my epistle not to keep company with sexually immoral people. Got it. Yet I certainly did not mean with the sexually immoral people of this world or with covetous 
or extortioners, or notice there, idolaters. If we stop there, we're going to have a picture of people in the world who are given over to idolatry, who are idolaters. But notice verse 11. But now I have written to you not to keep company with anyone named a brother who is sexually immoral or covetous or an idolater. You see, if we're not careful, the misconception that we go through is that we look back at the Old Testament and we think about golden calves and we think about little figurines and we say, I don't have a problem with idolatry. But we come forward and we can see that, yes, even in the New Testament times and to those who would be brothers, Christians can still struggle with idolatry. So we go back to the question we asked just a moment ago, what is it in your life that could be an idol? What is it in your life that could be a problem or be in the way? Well, let's notice what God said about idols, first of all. In the Old Testament, Exodus chapter 20. We know Exodus chapter 32, we looked at a few moments ago with the golden calf. But first, in Exodus chapter 20, we read about the giving of the Ten Commandments. Right? Moses is going to read these to the people he's going to deliver. And what's the first one that's listed there? You shall have no other little g, plural s, gods, before me. And even verse number 4 through 6, you shall not make for yourself a carved image. You see, if we're not careful, we make idolatry about golden calves and figurines, and we forget that what God is saying, even from the beginning, even from the Ten Commandments, is you shall have no other gods before me. There shall be nothing that is put in my place. I deserve first place. And it even says there, as we think about, look at verse number 2, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Almost as if he would know the claim that would continue to come down through the ages from people that look at what these golden calves did for us. I am the Lord who brought you out of the land of Egypt. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall make no other graven or carved image for yourselves. God said in the Old Testament, I deserve first place. In your life, I shall be number one. Not only did he lead the children of Israel out of the land of Egypt, but do we need to go around the room this morning and list all the things that he's done for me and for you? He, we could put anything in the place there. We could put a blank. I am the Lord your God who did what? He's done many great things in your life as he has in mine. Nothing else should take his place. When we go forward to the New Testament, though, we think about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 14. 1 Corinthians 10 and verse number 14, which says very simply, flee from idolatry. The Old Testament says, no other God before me. The New Testament says, flee from idolatry. Now, does he say flee from golden calves? Does he say flee from little figurines or statues? I don't think that's exactly what he's meaning. I think on a broader sense that we're going to come to in a minute, he means idolatry. Flee from idolatry. In fact, the commentator or scholar Matthew Henry says about 1 Corinthians chapter 10 and verse number 14 that idolatry is the most heinous injury and affront to the true God. You might say it's murder. You might say it's lying or something else. But in his thought, and I like the thought process here, idolatry is the most heinous injury and affront to the true God for it is transferring his worship and honor to something else. To a rival. 
He's on to something there, I think, especially as we think about what we are trying to talk about this morning. When we think about idolatry, I think this is starting to begin to paint a picture for us as New Testament Christians living in the year 2020. The New Testament doesn't stop there. We think about Matthew chapter 22, verses 37 through 38. Jesus himself says that you are to love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and strength. All your heart, mind, and soul. All those things, everything about us should love the Lord your God. That is the first commandment. That should be what we put all of our life into. Loving God with everything that we have. We can go forward to the book of Galatians. Do you remember Galatians chapter 5? I know our young people do because we sing the song about it. Galatians chapter 5 is the fruit of the Spirit. But if you go above or backward from the fruit of the Spirit, what is listed there? And that is, of course, the works of the flesh. And verse number 20 lists, lists in that list there idolatry. The works of the flesh include idolatry. The Bible very clearly seems to paint a picture for us that we have to, at all costs, avoid idolatry. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. No other gods before me. It doesn't matter what dispensation we live in. We think about how much we should worship and honor God. And anything, anything else that is put in His place is going to be a problem. You see, as we begin to talk about idolatry, this is the definition that I hope that you will accept into your life. That an idol, or even giving ourselves over to idolatry, is anyone or anything. Trying to paint the picture as broad as we can here and cover all of our life, an idol is anyone or anything that takes the primary place of God in your life. An idol is anyone or anything that takes the primary place of God in your life. Now we've opened up the door there as we think about anyone or anything. Because as we think about our lives, there is a lot of things in our life. We're very busy people. We have a lot of things at home. We have a lot of things at work. We have a lot of people in our lives, a lot of things that vie for our attention. And most of those are perfectly fine in their context, in the proper place. But what place are they taking in your life? And what we want to do is challenge you to think about that. When we think about our lives and this idea of the bales, how does idolatry affect your life? What is it? And I'm going to ask you to consider, not only in this moment, but leaving this place here in the next few minutes, what is it in your life that could be taking first place from God? Anyone... Or anything. See, that's a pretty broad category there to throw all of these things into. And what I would like for us to do is this morning we have kind of come to an understanding of what idolatry is. God says, I will be first place. And essentially, all of those other verses, the words of Jesus, the words of Paul, and anything thereafter is saying that if you will put anything in the place of God, then you, my friend, you, my brother and sister in Christ, and of course me, myself, have a problem with idolatry. Anything. And so what I would challenge you to do is to come back. Or of course, certainly to view these lessons online. But over the next couple of weeks, I would like for us to really 
consider some specific things. You know, oftentimes we have trouble being honest with ourselves, don't we? We, we might say, well, I don't, I don't struggle with idolatry. That's not really a problem for me. So I'll help us with that. Maybe give some suggestions. And I challenge you, this week we understand what idolatry is, but come back and let's think about some of those things and try to determine if the Bales are a family, so to speak. Think about the phrase used that way. What is it? Three, four, five, six things? Is there something in your life that's taking the place of God? And what we ultimately want to do, of course, is determine how we need to handle those things. Because I'm going to challenge you here as we conclude this lesson to think. What do you think is going to be your eternal place? If there is something in your life that is above God. On that day of judgment, if you have to say, but God, my spouse. But God, my job. But God, my kids. But God, you know, that boat or those golf clubs or anything really get in the way sometimes. And, and you know, I just have to give them attention. We can think about a boat and a set of golf clubs, but can a spouse be an idol? Can our kids be an idol? Can our job be an idol in our life? Try to take the golden calves and the little figurines and set them aside. And let's together for the next couple of weeks try to examine what really might be a problem for us and what we're going to do about it. As we conclude this lesson, we extend the Lord's invitation and ask you to make God first and foremost in your life. If you are here and you're not a child of God, a Christian, we're about to sing this song, that you would be made whiter than snow. That only comes by submitting yourself to God's simple plan of salvation. Repenting of your sins, of course, confessing Jesus as Lord and being baptized. That is where you come in contact with the blood of Christ. You're buried just as He was buried, and you can rise again just as He rose again. You can walk in newness of life. The Lord will add you to His church, and you can begin to live faithfully. It's a wonderful place to be. It's a comforting place to be, to know that you are right with God and He is first in your life. But as many of us would do as Christians, it's tough to remain faithful because things get in the way. Idols get in the way. And we allow those things to take first place in our life. Maybe you're here this morning and you've turned your back on God. You've put something else in His place. Maybe there's sin that's of a public nature and you need to come forward and repent of that. It's why we have a great family, a great body that we can sing and encourage you with the words, that we can pray with you and for you, that whether you need to become a Christian or come back to Him, we can help you as now we stand together and as we sing.